of chapter 9, uh, Dimensions, excuse me, Dynamics of Interpersonal Relationships. And uh, the first section was around 40 minutes. This is probably going to be more like 15 minutes for the second section. So uh, I'm on page 290. I have uh, skipped a few pages uh, in regards to uh, re uh, dialectical perspectives on relation, relational dynamics. So it's a little different model than the NAP model. I just think the NAP model is superior to that. Feel free to read through that information. But I'm going to pick up on communicating about relationships on page 290. So um, it says here that uh, by now complex, dynamic, and important. And then we're going to talk about um, the importance of how every message has a content and relational dimension. The most obvious component of most messages is the content, the subject being discussed. The content of statements such as it's your turn to do the dishes or I'm busy Saturday night is obvious. In addition, however, every message has both a verbal and nonverbal. Also, a second relational dimension which makes statements about how the communicators feel towards one another. These relational messages deal with one or more social needs, intimacy, affinity, respect, and control. Consider the following examples. Imagine two ways of saying it's your turn to do the dishes. One is demanding, the other is a matter of fact. Note how the difference is. The demanding tone says, in effect, I have the right to tell you what to do around the house, whereas the matter of fact one suggests I'm just reminding you of something that might have been overlooked. So you can easily imagine the two ways to deliver these, the statement, I'm busy Saturday night, with one with little, little affection and one with much liking. Like these messages, every statement we make goes beyond discussing the subject at hand and says something about the way the speaker feels about the recipient and their relationship. You can prove this fact by listening for relational messages implicit in your own statements to others. Most of the time, we're unaware of the relational messages that bombard us every day. Sometimes these messages don't capture our awareness because they match our belief about the amount of control, liking, intimacy that is appropriate in relationships. For example, you probably won't be offended if your boss tells you to drop everything and tackle a certain job because you agree that supervisors have the right to direct employees. However, if your boss delivered the order in a condescending, sarcastic, or abusive tone of voice, you probably would be offended. Exactly how a relational message is communicated. As the boss and employee example suggests, they're usually expressed non-verbally. So to test this theory, it says, um, imagine that you can act out the following, uh, and here's the question while saying, to test this fact for yourself, imagine how you would act while saying, can you help me for a minute in a way that communicates each of the following relationships, superiority, helplessness, friendliness, aloofness, sexual desire, irritation. So you can try that. So there's six ways. So can you say, can you help me for a minute with a sense of superiority, one with helplessness, one with friendliness, one with, one with aloofness, one with sexual desire, and one with irritation? So you could see that you can use those different uh, perspectives on the content and you would have diff various, uh, certainly different interpretations of that depending upon those six ways. Although nonverbal behaviors are a good source of relational messages, remember that they are ambiguous. Ambiguous. The sharp tone you take as a personal insult might be a due to fatigue, and the interpretation you take as an attempt to ignore your ideas might be a sign of pressure that has nothing to do with you.
Before you jump to conclusions about relational cues, excuse me, clues, it's a good idea to verify the accuracy of your interpretation with the other person. When you cut me off, it seems like you were angry with me. Were you? Uh, that's perception checking, and we've already covered that, right? The different steps to perception checking. Not all relational messages are nonverbal. Social scientists use the term meta communication to describe messages that refer to other messages. In other words, meta communication is communication about communication. So, isn't that communication? Isn't that confusing? Meta communication is communication about communication. Whenever we discuss a relationship with others, we are meta communicating. I wish we could stop arguing so much. I appreciate how honest you've been with me. It's communicating about communication. Despite its importance, overt metacommunication isn't a common feature of most relationships. In fact, there seems to be an aversion to it even among intimates. When 90 people were asked to identify the taboo subjects in their relationships, personal relationships, the most frequent topic involved metacommunication. For example, people were, were reluctant to discuss the state of their current relationship and the norms or rules that govern their lives together. So that is, that's an interesting one. So the next moment you have with your partner, romantic partner, say, you know what, can we, can we um, schedule some time to discuss the state of our current relationship? Because I was just, um, I just need to get a little bit more insight about where we are in our relationship. And then you uh, email me or text me and tell me um, how uh, motivated or how interested the partner is in spending some time talking about the state of your relationship. Although I would uh, argue that good partners will be open to those conversations, even though they may be a bit scary or a little bit create a little bit of anxiety or uncertainty about the meaning of the meta communication. It is good on a regular basis to have some type of checkup on where both parties feel their relationship is and where it's going and maybe where it came from. So I would certainly suggest that, but I mean, this is a good point. If you say to your partner, hey, um, can we spend some time to discuss the state of our current relationship? Um, most, I would argue, uh, uh, partners a would be are afraid to ask the question mainly because they their con their concern is what the response may be if that person decided to take that time to discuss it nevertheless there are times when it becomes necessary to talk about what's going on between partners and it says here research shows that metacommunication could play a vital role in relational maintenance and repair so maybe before uh, a conflict or some type of negative um, relational component gets to a place where it feels like it's um, not fixable, maybe that would be a good place to kind of start. Okay, maintaining and supporting relationships. Just as gardens need tending, cars need tune-ups, and bodies need exercise, relationships need ongoing maintenance to keep them successful and satisfying. Relational maintenance, as we discussed in Knapp's model there, we talked about that at the uh, top of that uh, chart. It says, what kinds of communication help maintain relationships? Positivity, keeping the relational climate polite, upbeat, and avoiding criticism. Criticism is one of those seven horsemen of um, negative 
relational attributes that makes it difficult to stay in a relationship. Next, openness. Talking directly about the nature of the relationship and disclosing your personal needs and concerns. Um, third, assurances. Letting the other person know, both verbally and non-verbally, that he or she matters to you and that you are committed to the relationship. Next, social networks, being invested in each other's friends and families and loved ones. And lastly, sharing tasks, helping one another take care of life's chores and obligations. These maintenance strategies aren't just for romantic relationships. They have to do with all sorts of relationships. Any uh, long-term, uh, mutually satisfying relationship will benefit from uh, those five areas. As a reminder, positivity... Openness, assurances, social networks, and sharing tasks. Moving on to social, social support on 293, whereas relational maintenance is about keeping a relationship thriving, social support is about helping others during challenging times by providing emotional, inf informational, or instrumental resources. Emotional support, few things are more helpful during times of stress, hurt, or grief than a loved one who listens with empathy and responds in a, responds in a caring way. Next, informational support. The people in our lives can be helpful, uh, informative sources. They can give us recommendations for shopping, advice about relationships, or observations about our blind spots in relationships when, we, when the red flags are not um, obvious to us or we're oblivious to them. Instrumental support. Sometimes support is best given by rolling up the sleeves and doing a task or a favor, a practical task to show that one cares. It's worth noting that social support can also be found online, which can happen, but instrumental support actually showing with practical expressions of care probably need to be done in person. Okay, moving on. Repairing damaged relationships. Sooner or later, even the most satisfying and stable relationships will hit a bumpy patch. Some problems arise from outside sources, work, finances, competition, and relationships, and so on. Others, problems arise from differences and disagreements within the relationship. And then we're going to talk about um, conflict, which is um, chapter 12. Sometimes I said it was chapter 11, but when they changed one of the versions of the book, it used to be chapter 11. So uh, it is chapter 12, conflict. We're going to talk about that. All right. Uh, it says here um, a, uh, one type of relational problem is called relational transgressions. That's defined as when one partner violates the explicit or implicit terms of a relationship, letting the other one down in some important way. So uh, relational transgressions. Um, I think there's a, um, a key here. It says when one partner violates the explicit or implicit terms of the relationship. And I've said several times that um, I think the key to um, successful, satisfying, functional, mutually satisfying relationships, especially long-term romantic ones, lies with um, the acronym CAN, C-A-N. The ability to compromise, the ability to accommodate, and the ability to negotiate with your partner, and then also establishing uh, boundaries, and then negotiating differences and synchronizing expectations. And in this area of relational transgression, it says uh, one partner violates the explicit or implicit terms of the relationship, especially early on in the relationship, the terms are implicit, which means they're implied. And if we have a high degree of agreement, 
oftentimes we never actually make them explicit because we agree implicitly. But oftentimes when it comes to expectations about relationships, it is the implicit terms of relationship that uh, make it difficult to maintain uh, deep levels of intimacy, and that oftentimes is a source of conflict. Basically, we assume that our partner should know, uh, the, know the things they should or shouldn't do within the relationship, or we have expectations about how that person should or shouldn't act, and they violate those expectations, and then we assume that they knew them, but they were never fully discussed or discussed at all, that they were implicit. But now as the partner's relationship changes, maybe in the differentiating stage, the uh, oftentimes it is important to make those expectations uh, clear and move from implicit to more explicit. And that's why and oftentimes there's this thing that cultures have done for a long, long time, for thousands and thousands of years. They don't do it hardly anymore. Some of you may have heard about them. Like if you read books, it's called Mirage, where um, two individuals will get together and they'll want to have a uh, long-term monogamous uh, relationship. And then uh, they get their friends and family together and they have a ceremony and then they stand in front of a, a religious individual or someone that can solemnize the interaction between the two humans. And they vow in public to do certain things, uh, better for worse, richer for poor, death of you part, love and all that stuff. Uh, I know it's, if you want to look that up, you'll find it in, in dictionaries or encyclopedias or some movies. Um, um, it's an old idea. It's called marriage. So if you get a chance to look that up, some of you... You're going to have to look, look me. There's some YouTube videos, in fact, that, that maybe show you some ancient rituals that uh, communities and cultures have done, but they just don't do that anymore. But um, in a lot of cases, those um, explicit terms are in those vows. For better, for worse, what does that mean? For richer, for poor, what does that mean? Forsaking all others, what does that mean? Uh, to love and cherish, what does that mean? So um, those are... Uh, explicit uh, terms and historically, culturally, we've called those vows. Again, that's a very antiquated term or word, but I'm sure if you look up a dictionary encyclopedia that you can be more informed about that. Okay, so this is on page 294. Moving on to types of relational transgressions, minor versus significant, social versus relational, deliberate versus unintentional, one-time versus incremental. So those are different types of relational transgressions, and they may or may not have a huge impact uh, on the relationship. And again, they're kind of negotiated, so whatever minor is versus significant, you know, you're going to have to be able to negotiate that. But on 295, there's a really good chart, Table 9.2. It says some types of relational transgressions, lack of commitment, and they give you three um, kind of descriptors, failure to honor an important obligation, self-serving dishonesty, or unfaithfulness. Next, they have distance, physical separation beyond what's necessary, psychological separation, avoiding ignoring. Uh, third, disrespect, criticisms, especially in front of third parties, especially when you're out eating at a restaurant, those kind of things. Uh, fourth, problematic emotions, jealousy, unjustified suspicion, and rage. Uh, those are certainly relational transgressions. And lastly, aggression, verbal abuse, verbal hostility, and of course, physical violence. And that is perhaps the worst kind of relational transgression. 
that if you care about someone, why would you physically try to uh, injure them or even emotionally try to abuse them? All right, so minor versus significant. Um, for instance, a little, a little distance can make the heart grow fonder. A little jealousy can be a sign of affection. A little anger can start the process of resolving a gripe. Right, a little bit. So it depends upon these are relative ideas. Social versus relational. Some transgressions violate social rules shared by society at large. For example, almost everyone would agree that ridiculing or humiliating a friend or family member in public is a violation of a fundamental social rule regarding saving other people's faces. Other rules, other rules such as relational. Uh, in nature, unique norms constructed by people in, uh, are unique norms constructed by people involved. For instance, some families have a rule stating, "If I'm going to be more than a little bit late, I'll let you know so that you don't worry." It's a good example. Deliberate versus unintentional. Some transgressions are un- tra- transgressions are unintentional. You might reveal something about a friend's past without realizing that this disclosure would be embarrassing. Others are intentional. In a fit of anger, you might purposely lash out and say something cruel, knowing that, it will hurt, knowing that it will hurt the other person's feelings. And then one time versus incremental. The most obvious transgression occurs in a single episode, an act of betrayal, a verbal assault, walking out in anger. But more subtle transgressions occur over time. Consider emotional withdrawal. People have times when they retreat into themselves, and we usually give one another the space to do that. But if the withdrawal is uh, becomes pervasive, meaning it happens a lot, it becomes a violation of the fundamental rule in most relationships that partners should be available to one another. Okay, strategies for relational repair on 295. Research confirms the common sense notion that a first step to repairing a transgression is to talk about the violation. Stating the negative outcomes of transgressions or making an explicit demand for an apology are both associated with more positive relational outcomes. In other cases, you may be responsible for the transgression and want to raise it for discussion. You could say something like, what I did, what did I do that you found so hurtful? Was my behavior a problem? Asking questions like this and listening non-defensively can be an enormous challenge, but it is very useful. Not surprising... Not surprisingly, some transgressions are harder to repair than others. One study on dating partners found that sexual infidelity, uh, cheating on a partner, and breaking up with the partner were the two least forgivable offenses. And it probably should be, um, especially if the relationship is not um, formally, um, is not a formal kind of relationship. So if partners are sexually um, cheating on one another and unfaithful uh, trying to maintain a relationship with someone that would engage in that type of uh, behavior. Uh, Rarely do those partners um, not only um, change their behavior, but oftentimes uh, they don't. So when it comes to certain types of relational transgressions, uh, certainly this idea of being unfaithful or cheating uh, may be the uh, unforgivable, unpardonable sin, so to say. It says here, for the best chance of repairing a seriously damaged relationship, an apology needs to be offered. If you have done something wrong in your dealings with another person, 
Um, as if there's an infection in a relationship, a good apology is like an antibiotic. A bad apology is like rubbing salt in the wound. I like that. So that is interesting. It says here, an apology will be convincing only if the speaker's nonverbal behaviors match what is said. Even then, it may be unrealistic to expect immediate forgiveness. Sometimes, especially with severe transgressions, expressions of regret and promise of new behavior will only be accepted conditionally with a need for them to be demonstrated over time before the aggrieved party um, believes that they are genuine. Given the challenges and possible humiliation involved in apologizing, is it even worth the effort? Research says yes. Participants in one, participants in one study consistently reported that they had more remorse over apologies, um, over apologies they didn't offer than the ones that they did. So the idea that when people have remorse about what they did or didn't do, right? They're like, all right, um, it says here that they had more remorse over apologies they didn't offer than the ones that they did. Yeah, sometimes you offer an apology and for whatever reason, it doesn't go well with the other party. It may create more conflict or more interpersonal tension. But I think I, I wholeheartedly agree with this. It's better to apologize um, even if it doesn't work out perfectly than to think back and say, I probably should have. Forgiving transgressions. Many people think of forgiveness as a topic for religious people and philosophers. However, social scientists have found that forgiving others has both a personal and relational benefits. On a personal level, forgiveness has been shown to reduce emotional distress and aggression, as well as improve cardiovascular functioning. Interpersonally, extending forgiveness to lovers, friends, and family can often help restore damaged relationships. Moreover, most research shows that transgression, transgressors who have been forgiven are usually less likely to repeat their offenses than those who have not been forgiven. Again, I would, I would take that, uh, put it in context. I mean, uh, in, uh, as far as relational transgressions, I, I'm not sure that in regards to being unfaithful or cheating, especially when it has been established that the parties are mutual with one another, um, I'm not so sure that that behavior, um, even once um, um, apologized for and forgiveness offered, uh, it's going to be really hard to trust that person to actually um, change, uh, to believe the person has changed their behavior. In uh, formal relationships, ones like long-term shackeries or marriages, and, and again, if you're not sure what, what, what those are, you can, you can look those up. But in those long-term relationships, um, there may be um, a motivation by both parties that even with sexual infidelity or cheating, that they could stay together and, and work it out. I, I personally don't know how, but I have heard uh, psychologists, psychologists, and people in that business say that it is possible. It says, even when a sincere apology is offered, forgiving others can be difficult. Research shows that one way to improve your ability to forgive is to recall times when you have mistreated or hurt others in the past. In other words, to remember that you too have wronged others and needed forgiveness. Given that it's our own, in our, own, our own interest to be forgiving, we would do well to remember those words. Okay. Uh, it just makes good sense. Okay. So that is the um, end or the second part of, pay, of chapter 9, Dynamics of Interpersonal Relationships, and that ends on page 297. Okay, so uh, please listen to part 1 if you haven't, uh, besides this part 2. Hopefully this was insightful, but do read the entire uh, text even because I'm just highlighting uh, the text, okay? This is Professor Devano out.